0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. I want to do two things this morning. We're going to take a little break from Galatians this this Sunday. And uh, the first thing I want to do is share something with you that I read this morning. That was helpful to me on the topic of anxiety. And then second of all, I want to give a report on the Evangel Presbytery meeting that just happened. I think it's a good practice to get into to have a short report after each of those Presbytery meetings uh, during a Sunday school, just so you know what's going on denominationally, what's going on um, beyond our local congregation in Evangel Presbytery. So first of all, um, Matthew 6, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? So there's a book that has been very helpful to me for many years by a pastor named Theodore Kyler, that's C-U-Y-L-E-R, called God's Lights on Dark Clouds. And he as a pastor lost three children, and so he was in the veil of tears for uh, a lot of his life. And he wrote these short meditations on anxiety and and freedom from anxiety and the scriptures teaching. And so one of them is on this passage, and uh, I I found what he said very helpful, and and maybe it will lodge in your brains and be helpful to you if you are anxious. He says this, quoting the passage, which of you by being anxious can add one cubit to the measure of his life? The whole remonstrance against borrowing trouble in advance is summed up in the happily translated sentence, be not therefore anxious for the morrow, for the morrow will be anxious for itself. Then he says this, we may be sure that our blessed Lord knew what was in man when he gave so much space in his sermon to this one tormenting sin and repeated six times over his entreaties to avoid it. Worry is not only a sin against God, it is a sin against ourselves. It sometimes amounts to a slow suicide. Thousands have shortened their lives by it, and millions have made their lives bitter by dropping this gall into their souls every day. Honest work very seldom hurts us. It is worry that kills I have a perfect right to ask God for a strength equal to the day, listen to this, but I have no right to ask him for one extra ounce of strength for tomorrow's burden. We ask for today, we don't ask for tomorrow. When tomorrow comes, grace will come with it, and sufficient for the tasks, the trials, and the troubles. God never has built a Christian strong enough to stand the strain of present duties and all the tons of tomorrow's duties and sufferings piled upon the top of them. Paul himself would have broken down. There's only one practical remedy for this deadly sin of anxiety, and that is to take short views. Take short views. What does he mean by that? Faith is content to live from hand to mouth. "'enjoying each blessing from God as it comes. "'This perverse spirit of worry runs off "'and gathers some anticipated troubles "'and throws them into the cup of mercies "'and turns them to vinegar. "'A bereaved parent sits down by the new-made grave "'of a beloved child and sorrowfully says to herself, "'Well, I have only one more left, "'and one of these days he may go off "'to live in a home of his own, "'or he may be taken away, and if he dies,' My house will be desolate and my heart utterly broken. Now who gave that weeping mother permission to use the word if? Is not her trial sore enough now without overloading it with an imaginary trial? As if her strength breaks down, it will be simply because she is not satisfied with letting God afflict her. She tortures herself with imagined afflictions of her own. If she would but take a short view, she would see a living child yet spared to her to be loved and enjoyed and lived for. Then instead of having two sorrows, she would have one great possession to set over against a great loss. Her duty to the living would be, would be not only a relief to her anguish, but the best tribute she could pay to the departed. That is a short view which only takes in immediate duty to be done, the immediate temptation to be met, and the immediate sorrow to be carried. My friend, if you have money enough today for your daily wants and something for God's treasury, don't torment yourself with the idea that you or yours may yet get into an almshouse. If your children cluster around your table, enjoy them, train them, trust them to God without racking yourself with a dread that the little ones may sometime be carried off by the scarlet fever or the older ones may yet be ill, married, or may fall into disgrace. Faith carries present loads and meets present assaults and feeds on present promises and commits the future to a faithful God. That's helpful, isn't it? God gives you grace for today, right? He will supply the grace for today. Put out of your mind tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, right? If you're like me, tomorrow dominates your thoughts, and today is ruined because your thoughts are on tomorrow, right? Rather than being present in the moment, you're off worrying about tomorrow. And if we had and recognized the grace that God gives us, each day um, we would be more present and we would also be less anxious and so remember these words take a short view keep short views Um, keep your thoughts focused on today and and count think about current blessings rather than future ifs if this if that what what if this this trouble or this trial or this curse comes um, that's not your. That's not your call. That's to go beyond the grace that God has given you. So, that for the anxious, a little help. All right. So, Evangel Presbytery. Hopefully, you grabbed one of these on the way in. Just want to report to you on the Evangel Presbytery meeting. We are a Presbyterian church. That that means you know, it doesn't first mean that we baptize covenant children. It first means the first thing you should think of is ecclesiology. It's the structure of our church. We're ruled by elders and there are um, different levels, different courts of appeal, different courts of accountability. And so Um, We have local sessions, which you pick as a congregation, you vote upon, and put men into office, and then elders and pastors um, meet together three times a year at our presbytery meeting and decide matters that will concern all of the churches in Evangel Presbytery. If we had multiple presbyteries, then we would have what's called a general assembly once a year, and all the presbyteries would send delegates to that um, to handle matters for the whole church. So we get together three times a year, fall, uh, winter, and spring-summer. So we just had our spring-summer meeting. And you can see on the first page, after you open up, the docket. This was all the business that was, was handled at the presbytery meeting. We met from about 9 a.m. to, oh, it was a relatively brief meeting. It got over about 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon, I think, if I recall correctly. Um, I went, um, Chuck and Renton were not able to go, and Matt Shiflett came along with me as a candidate. He's under care in the Presbyterian, so the Presbyterian ha- has oversight of his education, and so uh, he attended. And so you look at the docket here, we start with worship this is a meeting of the church, and so we start with the worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, um, we heard a, a great sermon from a pastor uh, who is a member of Presbytery. Uh, his church is not a member of Presbytery, but he holds his credentials in the Presbytery. Um, Jeremy van der Gallien, Gallien is his name, and he preached a sermon on prayer and it was very convicting, very helpful. And then we go through a number of um, traditional things. We, we uh, seat corresponding members that might be people from other denominations who are attending, who have, we, we might grant to them voice in Presbytery, but no vote or something like that, or we may just tell them to be quiet, say nothing. Now, usually corresponding members means that um, we, we've welcomed them there and, and they, uh, they are welcome to address the assembly, um, maybe not deliberate on motions. But, uh, and then visitors are introduced. Um, then we adopt the docket. This, this time, for the first time, we appointed a parliamentarian. A parliamentarian is somebody who uh, has a copy of Robert's Rules of Order and the Book of Church Order, and any procedural questions that come up um, that, that person will make rulings on here's the proper way, here's, we did this out of order we need to go back and clean this up, whatever. But we, but our meetings are run as most meetings um, even of uh, boards of businesses, any sort of boards, any sort of uh, deliberative body uses Robert's rules of order to uh, keep the proceedings in order and make sure that everybody has voice who who uh, is a member of the assembly and it keeps, uh, keeps things in order. Sometimes it can get rather annoying. And very procedural. And so, I mean, even Robert's rules says that the parliamentarian cannot have, uh, cannot fully participate in meetings. And so we said, now nah, we want him to be able to vote. So we suspended the Robert's rules so that the parliamentarian could vote, all that stuff. We adopted the meeting minutes from the previous meeting. And then the stated clerk gave a report. And the stated clerk is a man who uh, is is basically running the presbytery when when it's not in session so he's keeping it's like the clerk of session right um, We have session uh, clerks. Uh, Chuck is our um, our clerk of session and so he's the one who sends letters to churches when membership is changed and things like that. Well the state of clerk has a similar function but for the presbytery and You'll notice under 9c that there was reading and assignment of communications. Now, our session—it um, la- was last year—sent up a couple overtures, and an overture is an appeal to presbytery that some change or some some change to the book of Chorder, church order, be considered, or some. Uh, study committee be formed. It's a request of Presbytery to do something. So we sent up two overtures, both on the Lord's table, and adding sections on our, in our book of church order uh, that would just clarify what, uh, what we do and what needs to be done and our views regarding the Lord's table. And you can see those two overtures if you flip Past the financials, we're not going to look at those, but if you're interested in the financials of Presbytery, they're there. We do, as a church, give money to Presbytery. They, they ask each church to give 1% of their budget to support the work of, of Presbytery. It's called askings. And so uh, we give our 1%. So the first one, it's on page 24 of 58, it says at the top, although it's not page 24. Um, I didn't give you the whole packet. N- there wasn't enough paper downstairs for that. The first one is an overture regarding fencing of the, the Lord's table. And the bolded section is what we believe needed to be added. And so BCO 60, which is in the section on the Lord's Supper in the directory for worship says this, the minister shall then declare who may come to and who are excluded from the Lord's table according to the word of God. You've heard me do that. Every Sunday I say, who's welcome to the Lord's table? Baptized, right? Believers in Christ. Uh, under the authority of a Bible-believing evangelical church and their session, Right? Well, up to this point, we didn't have to say under the authority of a Bible-believing evangelical church. But now, we have to say that. And that's what we wanted added to the book of church order. So, going on in the second sentence. Since by our Lord's appointment, the sacrament sets forth the communion of saints, the minister at the discretion of the session before the observance begins may either invite all who profess the true religion and our communicants in good standing in a Bible-believing evangelical church to participate in the ordinance or invite those who have been approved by the session after having given indication of their desire to participate. It is proper also to give a special invitation to non-communicants to remain during the service. He may use the following or like words, and then it goes through the liturgy. So you notice there it lays out two options. You're either a, a member in good standing of a Bible-believing evangelical church, and those words were used very intentionally, and we argued about those words. Um, believing that the Bible is inspired and evangelical means that you... It's, it's broader than if we just said reformed, right? And it's more restrictive than if we said, like, the church Catholic, or something like that, right? Evangelical, you believe that God is a person, you believe prayer is praying to him, you believe in sin, you believe that man fell. I mean, there are fundamental evangelical doctrines that um, are non-negotiable. And so so either I can up here invite everybody who's a member not just of our church, but of a Bible-believing evangelical church to participate with us. Or I could say, no one comes to this table except for those who have been approved by session. And if you're visiting with us, maybe you could have a 10-minute meeting with a session member before the, the meeting to give a profession of faith and be accepted. But that's going to be difficult because, you know, elders are flying around doing ministry on Sundays. And so that's, that is a more restrictive view, but it's a legitimate view. It just means that everybody who comes to the table has been examined by this session. And it is the session who's distributing the elements, right? And so they have responsibility. That's pastoral care, right? You wouldn't believe the pastoral ministry that happens just by the handing out of the elements. That's why we don't allow women to hand out the elements, or non-officers, for that matter. We just don't do that because um, elders, and to a certain extent deacons, have a knowledge of who they're handing the elements to, right? And they know who's been suspended from the table, perhaps, or they they see who refrained. And then, you know, if that happens three or four times, we're like, okay, you're... Somebody's keeping themselves from the Lord's table. What's going on? There's pastoral care that we need to do. We discuss this in every session meeting. Who didn't take the Lord's table? You know, and maybe we miss it sometimes and don't remember, but um, generally we try to try to keep track of that. So, this just shored all of that up and codified the fact that when, when I'm up here, I need to say that you are welcome to come to the table, but only if you're baptized a communicant member in good standing of a Bible-believing church. Okay? So that's in there now. Um, This language is directly stolen from the PCA's Book of Church Order, where, where a lot of our BCO material came from. It's actually from the 1933 PCUS Book of Church Order, which was what was used to create the PCA's Book of Church Order and, and, and ours with substantial changes. All right, so that's one of them. So what happened with this overture? About uh, six months ago, we sent it up. It was, pat, it was sent to an overtures committee. That committee came back to the presbytery after a whole meeting, uh, uh, between meetings, they came back they recommended it without change right so the presbytery voted it up then it went out to all the sessions of the churches that we needed a majority of the sessions to approve it and then we needed a subsequent presbytery to approve it so to change the BCO is not easy and that's purposeful we don't want the BCO to be easy to change we wanted to be very very much scrutinized any changes we would make to our constitutional documents so it goes through that three-part process actually four parts overtures committee vote of Presbytery vote of sessions vote of Presbytery alright any questions about this overture or the process or what am I talking about why do I care about this you should care about this because this is the church this is the work that your pastors and elders give a lot of time to is caring for not just this church, but the churches uh, that are yoked together in Evangel Presbytery, right? And we care about the Lord's table. That's like the locus of, I mean, beyond the preaching of the word, next is the, what happens at the Lord's table and membership. That is a hugely important part of our task. Yeah. no to our presbytery there is no other presbytery to ours yep yep lord willing with growth there you know presbyteries will proliferate but we have one right now and we wouldn't have to travel so far next june it's in north wisconsin it's an 18-hour drive It's a four hour flight plus a two hour drive. I mean, pick your poison. So, anyway, any other questions about this? Yeah? I was confused by that as well. What was that step four then? What was that last or the subsequent present period? I don't. sometimes, you, you've, you've got you've to figure out the lingo. Sometimes when I say Presbytery, I'm referring to a group of churches. Sometimes I'm referring to a meeting, right? So, Presbytery, it's like the word world in Scripture. You kind of have to figure it out by context. And so, when I was saying Presbytery, I was talking about meeting of Presbytery. I'll try to be clear on that, but so that's one. The other one, which I think is even more significant, and I'm very thankful that this passed, is on the next page, and that was to shore up our book of church order on the topic of Pedo communion So, we're pedo baptists right? By virtue of God's covenant promises, we apply the covenant sign and seal to children of believers, right? The, so faith is present. The faith of the parents is present. And by virtue of their faith and the promises that God said He would be a, a God to our children and our children's children, we, we baptize them and place the sign and seal of the, the covenant, the new covenant upon them. But... We baptize infants, but at the point of baptism, they're not coming to the table, right? You recognize that. Um, One, at a certain age, they wouldn't be able to partake of solid food. And so one, that would put them off till, you know, nine months, year. But even still, you don't see any one-year-olds or two-year-olds coming to the Lord's table in our church. In fact, generally, I think based upon history, you don't see many children prior to the age of eight, really. I think eight would be uh, the lowest end. But usually around 10 to 12 who come to the Lord's table. Now, there's a a group of quasi-Presbyterians well, they're not Presbyterian at all. There's a group of churches that is promoting Pado communion And Pado communion is, is very popular in, in the uh, Presbyterian church in America. There's a, even though it's, it's not explicitly condemned um, in their book of church order or explicitly commended, there are people who practice it on the down low. They put a really low bar. They'll they'll interview a two-year-old for the Lord's table, and they'll say, do you love Jesus? I mean, I was in on one of these at the church I attended in St. Louis during seminary. Do you you believe in Jesus? And the the two-year-old said, no. I don't. And then they said, wait, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. And that was enough to admit her to the table. And that was enough. To come to a table that if you remember, and you'll hear later when I read 1 Corinthians 11, that this is a table that has requirements in coming to it, right? And those requirements are the ability to examine oneself, right? The extraordinary two-year-old can't even do that. Even the extraordinary, precocious two-year-old does not in my mind, have the ability to properly examine themselves. And secondly, to discern the Lord's body, which means to know what is going on in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Right? What is going on with his body broken and his blood shed? But there's a whole group of people, paedocommunionists, who say by virtue of baptism, that child should be at the table and that's it. So when you're baptized, you're a member of the covenant, you come to the covenant meal. And we say, well, if 1 Corinthians 11 wasn't in scripture, we'd agree with you. But because 1 Corinthians 11 is there and it puts these hurdles, right? Must be able to examine oneself, must be able to discern the Lord's body. Um, then no, we can't, we can't allow them to come. And so we wait for that intellectual ability, yes, that is what it is, an intellectual understanding and the work of the Spirit in their hearts. And we put them through an interview with the elders. We smile a lot. We make it gracious. We, but it, every kid is terribly frightened during those interviews. We try to put them at ease. And we ask them, Things like this. What are the Ten Commandments? We ask them some catechism questions. And then we ask them, so um, what happened on the cross? You know, what did Jesus do for you? And what are your sins? Do you, do you sin? Are there things you've had to repent of? What do you struggle with? You know, and some have no answer. They, they, they have no awareness that they sin." And we say to the parents, well, let's come back in, an, in a year and see, you know, she did, she did well, he did well on this, but he didn't, you know, we're just, we want more, more growth here. And so we'll, we'll have them come back, um, but we want them to have an awareness and a sorrow for sin, that they be sorry for sin. That shows some work of the Spirit, right? It's hard for us to be sorry for our sin. Adults, right? But we know the Spirit's working when we do feel that godly sorrow uh, for our sin. So we want to see, see a 10-year-old ability to sorrow for sin. We're not looking for a 45-year-old's, you know, ability to sorrow for their sin. Um, so age is a factor. But anyway, here's the statement. We added these two paragraphs. Pado-communion, by which is meant the admitting of covenant children to partake of the Lord's Supper either by virtue of their baptism alone or before a credible profession of faith has been expressed to their session by giving evidence of the necessary ability to examine themselves and to judge the body rightly, shall not be practiced. Scripture's command to judge the body rightly shall be understood to require of the communicant an intellectual understanding of the significance of Christ's sacrifice on his behalf. The novel interpretation, and all the paedo-communionists bring out this interpretation, the novel interpretation in which that command is understood merely to require the communicant to refrain from disrupting fellowship within the visible church is rejected. Given that God's word does not lay out a specific age for their admission to the Lord's Supper, the ages at which covenant children are admitted to the Lord's Supper will vary. Nevertheless, baptism, a credible profession of faith, a demonstrated ability to recognize and be sorry for their sins, and to understand and express what Christ accomplished for them by his death on the cross, shall always be required before the session admits covenant children to the table succinct as we could be, that one, I'll I'll be, one sec, that one statement, the novel interpretation sentence, one of the interpretations of the Pato Communion is to say that discerning the Lord's body means discerning the Lord's church, using body in that sense, and so essentially they say if you can sit through a service without disrupting the fellowship, you know, without screaming or throwing your food or, you know, filling your pants with, you know, filth, excrement, good word, then you have met that standard. And we say, no, that, that is so novel, no one has ever interpreted this passage that way. And this, this is more about setting your mind on the work of Christ, discerning his body broken, right? That's what the whole meal is. It's a representation of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord. This is not about, at that point, ecclesiology. Yeah. Good. Like, for example, no. I, 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 yeah, if you get those four, you're good. Yeah, we 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 don't want to set too high a hurdle either. I mean, we're we're trying to keep from this low or no hurdle at all. But there, that we could set too high a hurdle, and then we we don't admit uh, covenant children to the Lord's table until they're 23. And their church is like that. There are a lot of churches like that. They have a kid and a house and, and uh, you know, marriage before they even come to the Lord's table. Yeah. And we, we are very clear that there is no age set in Scripture for coming to the Lord's table. It, it is a demonstrated, credible profession of faith. And some six-year-olds can do that. Right? Right? Um, some 17-year-olds can't and we take it case by case right and and it's it's hard that's hard work and it takes humility on parents if you bring your children forward know that there is the possibility that we may examine and say not yet you know but we we do it in such a way where we're trying to build up that child. We're very sensitive to the child's conscience at that point. And so um, I, I hope we handle that well. So that's that. Any other question about this or paedo-communion in general? Uh, paedo-communion, for me, uh, is, an, is a repudiation of church discipline. The reason I say that is um, they allow people to come to the table not on the basis of faith. Right? Not on the basis of a demonstrated, credible profession. They just say, oh, baptized in. And so there's no faith demonstrated. There's no faith there. And if you allow people to come to the table who don't have faith... You've just repudiated church discipline. You've made no distinction between member and non-member. You've you've blown you've blown the cover off of it. You know you've just destroyed church discipline. And so, um, it's, uh, paido communion. One last thing: paido communion is is very tempting for Reformed Baptists. Presbyterians have grown used to separating the Lord's table and baptism. Reformed Baptists have always held baptism and the Lord's table together. You get interviewed, you get baptized, you come to the Lord's table. What, what the Reformed Baptists like about Pado communion is it's baptism, Lord's Supper, just like they're used to, right? And so they conjoin those two sacraments when they should not be because of what Scripture lays out as requirements, okay? Now, some of you are saying, well, you guys get baptism wrong. I understand that, but we'll continue to debate that until the Lord returns. Um, But don't accuse Presbyterians of divorcing faith from the sacraments. That is not what we do. That That is a dirty argument that Reformed Baptists throw at Presbyterians, okay? Um, faith is present in both sacraments, okay? And um, the, the initiation of covenant children into their uh, rightful place that they have by birth to the parents of, uh, to birth to parents who believe, you know, is, um, anyway, I, I'm not going to teach them baptism. I just did. All right, back to the Presbytery meeting. On the next page, you'll see how mundane some of the BCO changes can get. Ours were profound, but there, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes, sometimes it's like, oh, we used the wrong word. And, and so that change has to go through the same process, right? Throughout the Book of Church Order, we, we refer to pastors as pastors, whereas in the PCA, they refer to pastors as teaching elders, But we're three office, we're pastor, elder, deacon, right? So we're just, we used, we teaching elder snuck in a few places and so we're correcting that back to pastor. Um, And then the last page that you have, another overture came up that is trying to fix the problem that we have that the BCO says that um, the moderator should preach at the services at the beginning of presbytery. Uh, But it's often, we we alternate between pastors and elders, right? And elders are not in the practice of preaching, right? Um, I like it when elders are in the practice of preaching. That's a good sign in a church when they're able and prepared to do so. But um, we wanted to take some of the burden off of ruling elders. And so if you're a ruling elder and uh, you're moderating the presbytery that year, you can choose somebody to preach for you or in your stead. And so we're just, you know, things like that. These constant tweaks and updating and shoring up of a of a document. This will go on as long as we exist. We'll find things that aren't expressed properly and we'll we'll try and figure them out. But these are constitutional documents. We we have vowed to abide by these these statements. If I went now and I started pushing the envelope as far as paedo-communion, I can now be disciplined based upon breaking the constitution of the church. It was a little bit more difficult before we had those statements in there. Right? It was just vague. And so now, now there's uh, some teeth. So what else did the Presbytery do? Really quickly, we have a few minutes. Um... The Ad Interim Committee on Abortion, you guys have seen the fruit of the work of that, that statement's called Abortion in the Church. The last thing we're doing is publishing that as a book, and so that will be available in a nice formatted book, and uh, we hope that you will take it up and spread it uh, far and wide. It's very helpful. And then number 11, the reports of permanent committees. There are committees that are always formed. One committee deals with everybody who wants to come into the presbytery and get ordained. That's the Candidates and Credentials Committee. And so we had an ordination exam, an exam of a man who will be an assistant pastor up at the church in Indianapolis. We did a transfer exam of a man who's already ordained, but is coming in to be an assistant pastor at another church. And then we gave an update on the training of pastors from New Geneva Academy. And then uh, I'm the chairman of the administrative and nominations committee. The administrative committee puts together the docket for this meeting. And the nominations committee just makes sure all the committees are stocked with uh, pastors and elders. And so, uh, pretty simple stuff. Shepherding Committee, on the second page of the docket. Shepherding Committee, if there are troubles in churches, the Shepherding Committee exists to help, to to help mediate, to help bring peace, to keep up with the health of all the churches. Church Planning and Domestic Missions Committee is um, obvious. They they do the work of um, taking mission churches building them up until they become particularized churches. What's a mission church? A mission church is a church that's forming and it doesn't have officers. When you become particularized, then you have your own local officers, elders and and, and or deacons. So we have three church plants, they all gave reports. And then the sh- sessional records committee is the evil committee of presbyterian no, <laughs> the sessional records committee is incredibly important because you know what the session records committee does the session records committee looks through all of our minutes of every church and says okay guys you did that out of order or you didn't properly notate some action you took or "It, it the first thing they do is make sure your minutes are in order the second thing they do is actually look for where you may be disaligned with the book of church order, and so it's accountability. It's like, did you, did you guys, um, did you guys, you know, properly conduct a, a case of church discipline? Um, your practice here is out of order. You're not listing marriages in your, you know, your uh, membership roles, all that sort of thing. So they scrutinize it, and there's a, there's a good level of accountability that comes with that. We were the first church that got hit hard for something. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> We were hit because we were. It was a limbo sort of situation between the PCA and the Evangel Presbyterian. There were just things that were not yet, you know, gelling. So, anyway, in the end, we were exonerated, which I'm thankful for. But it was. It was. It's their work. They should do. They. They did what they should have done. All right, and then the rest of it, unfinished bidness, business, a, a little bit of bylaws stuff and tweaks on those, and, um, and then we determined the, the next meetings that are coming up. The next one's in Indianapolis in October, so hopefully sometime after that I'll give an update on what took place, and then we write a letter of thanks to the hosting church and we adjourn. Um, so that's what, that's what we do. I just wanted to give you a bit of an inkling into this that we... We are a church under authority. I am a pastor that is under authority. I'm not a member of this church. I'm a member of that presbytery, and that presbytery can discipline me. Right? If I start preaching heresy, or if I start spitting at people from the pulpit who are yawning through my sermons, they can discipline me for that. Right? Um... But we're under authority. There's the, the beauty of Presbyterianism is it follows Jethro's, you know, um, advice to Moses to to set up the churches in this or set up the people in a in a uh, an accountable system. And so we're following that, and uh, it leads to the peace and purity of the church, which we're we're very interested in that. So that's all we have time for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing to your church. Thank you for uh, the men who gathered together on uh, Thursday and deliberated and so um, uh, properly and orderly and with uh, godliness and piety um, served your church. We do pray that it would lead to the peace and purity of your church and to our building up in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.